Interior. Night. Recording studio. Two redheads begin pre-show warm-ups. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Jack, write that you gargle your water or something. Jack gargles some water. And then put that we say, welcome to Script Shop. Who? Me or you? Mm-hmm. You say it. Welcome to Script Shop. N- no, but like, really, say it. Like, right now. Like, right now. Let's go for it. Welcome to Scrimshaw. No, Jack. Top. <laughs> Omaha. No, Jack. Welcome to Script Shop. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Script Shop. I'm Jack, and I put too much pressure on myself <laughs> to be clever. Um, I'm Allison, and uh, j- just to fill you in, moments before we started this, Jack mm-hmm. sat here trying to come up with a, a good way to intro the show. But hey, guess what? Hi. <laughs> welcome a, to Script Shop. Keeping it simple is a great way to start. <laughs> Hi. Welcome to Script Shop. Um, the place where we talk about scripts. We talk with screenwriters and people who write scripts or produce them, direct them, etc. We have lots of people wearing lots of different hats. And we are always so, so, so super excited. It's uh, a lot of S's. Yes. sounds. Yeah. Super excited to have people on the show and share their stories, personal and professional, with you. Yes, and we love to hear from you, our listeners. If you are out there and you are enjoying the show, uh, please find us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, find us on Twitter, uh, Script Shop Show. On Twitter, I am Script Shop Jack. And I'm your bestie, Westy, because, of course, my last name is West, Allison West. Right, so please find us, uh, get in touch with us. Also, if you do enjoy the show, the other way that you could show your appreciation, uh, get on iTunes, write us a little bit of a review. That really helps with us trying to get the story, to get the story, to get the show out there to people. Yeah, the story of us the story of this that's the show (laughs) get the story of script shop how many more s's can we pack in there we're gonna have to send it to the i was trying to think of a word for masses that starts with s the the scuttled masses (laughs) i don't know but it's gonna be really fun when we produce a movie about this and when we have to invest interview ourselves about the story of this in the movie of what's happening right now probably that kid that plays chip pemberton on on the (laughs) mick right now you gotta give it like maybe 10 years but that's Oh, there's there's man. a similarity there. I um in my wildest dreams I would have Isla Fisher play me for oh, anything. Yeah, sure. Wouldn't that be nice? That'd be great. Yeah. But also I'd like Isla Fisher to play me too. <laughs> for that matter. <laughs> um and then finally you can look us up at scriptshopshow.com. That's where you can catch episodes, mm-hmm. learn more about our writers, access scripts that are available for you to read there from these episodes, and submit. Send us your script, your story, your words. Because we always want new scripts, and we are constantly trying to find them. Yes. So send them our way so we can talk about you and all the cool stuff you do here. So our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Seth Panich, and he wrote a 100-page feature called Service to Man. This is a cool script. This is a... So pumped about it. Super pumped. Super so pumped, pumped to talk to him. You know Seth, right, from I do. before? Yeah. Okay. Um, so once upon a time, mm-hmm. I went to a film festival in Woodward, Oklahoma, and on the way there, I missed the bus that was supposed to take you to the festival from Oklahoma City Airport. Yeah. I had to take an Uber, a two-hour Uber ride. Because it's Oklahoma and you're in the middle of nowhere. I, well, I guess that Woodward was in the middle of nowhere for yeah, right. sure. And so we took this, and actually this lady, Crystal, who is my Uber driver, was so super nice and we're friends. We're going to have her now. on next week. <laughs> <laughs> but I took this two-hour drive to Woodward, and then on the way back... So it was the closing night of the festival, and I stayed up till 6 Mm a.m., hanging out and partying and having a great time. Uh Woke up at 9 a.m. to pack my stuff and get on the shuttle bus back to Oklahoma City at, like, 
9.30 or 10. So you didn't miss this bus? I did not, okay. but I sat in the back being like... Feeling like piping hot death. Yeah, for <laughs> for probably half of the ride. And then at some point, I had just been overhearing Seth talking to somebody in the front of the bus for a while, and I really wanted to talk to him. He mm-hmm. seemed so cool. And I love talking to people about ideas, mm-hmm. theirs and mine, knowing about their lives. And so I moved up. And Seth just talked to me for the rest of that, the rest of that trip. And it made me feel so good because uh-huh. he just listens. And we were talking about, um, cause he's newly married and I had just been married. Mm. So t- showing each other pictures of our beloveds and talking about all kinds of theater and film stuff. And, yeah. and then at the end of it said goodbye, sent him an email, saw him in Chicago again over the summer. It's just been like, wow. Seth Panich is the <laughs> the human hangover cure. That sounds, that's great. That's a great pedigree yeah. to have. Do you want to say a little bit about his script before we um, talk to him and et cetera? Service to Man is a story about a uh, a young Jewish man in the 1960s, the late 1960s, who has been accepted into a medical college that is historically black. And it's about him trying to figure out what kind of a doctor he wants to be. Uh, there's a bunch of other cast members that are also fellow students. Some of the teachers are some very interesting characters as well. I'm dying to talk to Seth about where the story came from, incorporating historical themes like this into a, into a script, and then what it's like to actually have the thing produced. I, that We haven't talked to too many people who've had their stuff yeah. actually go from script to with casting and on the screen and shooting, and I think that's super cool. Right, especially a writer who's been involved throughout the whole process, because right. now Seth is also doing distribution, and so getting to talk to him about that beginning, middle, end, if there is an end to it, will be really interesting as well. Real quick, before we do get into that, though, are you are you reading or watching anything interesting? Ooh, um, okay, so I read this book called Traveling with Ghosts. Mm-hmm. That's about this, it's, um, oh, it was so beautiful. It's hard to read because there was a lot of this young woman. She, um, she, her fiance got stung by a jellyfish. Okay. In like Thailand when they were just traveling. And then the story is about her working through that. And the beautiful thing about it is it's called Traveling with Ghosts, which of course is like the memories of people that you hold dear to you, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But the jellyfish, uh, they make a lot of metaphor to how these are like the ghosts of the ocean and how oh. she can't really get away from them. So this isn't like a horror thing or anything like that? No. Okay. And it was it's gorgeous because um, the metaphor that this woman has just had in her life is very reflective of, of just who she is and what okay. her journey has been. So it was a really, um, I, I just cried a lot mm. reading it. So sometimes that's great. You had feels. I had I had lots of feels yeah. for this woman. Um, and so that was a beautiful book that I got from the library okay. recently. Yeah, what about you? I'm actually rereading right now Good Omens. It's what is this? Probably my, it's a top three easily, maybe my favorite book. It's a book that Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett wrote years ago. Neil Gaiman is just, a brilliant writer. Um, Cincinnati throw out, throw out, throw up. Shout out. I'm going to call it a throw up from now on. Okay, you go with that. So Cincinnati throw up, the no theater is, they have a big Neil Gaiman show right now. Never, oh. Neverwhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I yeah. saw that. They're ad- they adapted Neverwhere. Yeah. So you should go see that. I do need to go see that. Anyway, Good Omens is a hilarious story about an angel and a demon who are living on Earth, and they're trying to actively stop the apocalypse from happening because they like hanging out on Earth so much. Man. Oh, 
What are they doing on Earth that they like so much? I just, I mean, they're they're amusement both amusement parks. They're being good and they're being bad still because they're both angels and demons. But like they, they they like humanity. They like this existence on Earth. They don't want it to end, even if you know Crowley the demon is messing with humanity and and Aziraphale the angel is. That sounds good. Doing the, it's it's being produced into a series now with uh, David Tennant and the what? guy who was in Frost Nixon. I can't think of his name. Oh, that's cool. Dying to see it as a show, but uh, the the book is really good. Good. Can omens. I read it after you read it? Yeah, sure. Is it like a copy you have, or did you get it from the library? Yeah, no, I got a copy. Okay, let me borrow it, please. Speaking of people with copies, we have Seth Panich with us, <laughs> who has made, I would imagine, multiple copies of this the script. script. Yeah, this is <laughs> that was a, a very smooth segment. Uh, so uh, there we go. We should talk to Seth now. Hi, Seth. How are you? I'm doing terrific. It, it's snowing in Alabama, which happens once every leap year. So Ooh. it's an exciting day down here. Are you serious? It's snowing there right now? It is snowing down here. We got about... Uh, I don't know, five inches of snow out there. The dog doesn't know what the hell to do. The whole city shuts down, and uh, it's kind of wonderful. We're sitting in Cincinnati, so it's it's early December. It, it's cold outside, but we've got a pretty decent amount of sunshine. And Which you, is weird. And you're in Alabama with five inches yep. of snow? Yep, yep, <laughs> we've swapped. We've cool. swapped today, I think. Yeah, there's definitely not any kind of weird omen. Speaking of good omens, that doesn't seem like a good omen right. at all. Well, you, you were just talking about the end of the world, weren't you? Yeah, I yeah. know. <laughs> two on the nose, Seth. Come on. Mm. Yeah. Seth, are you reading anything interesting lately? Uh, you know, I, I just actually finished a, um, a Stephen King novel, Dr. Sleep, which is his uh, yeah. follow-up to The Shining. Right. And, uh, the Shining was a book that I just loved as a kid, loved the film as well, the Kubrick film, and... Um, so uh, finishing that was a real thrill for me. I remember when Dr. Sleep came out, that had a lot of buzz to it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really, it, it's a lovely script. And, and, and oftentimes, um, you know, Stephen King talks about himself as sort of the McDonald's of, of writing. But there's a lot of heart in that book. It, it feels different than a lot of his other material. So uh, it was a terrific read. On this bus in Oklahoma, is, is your version mm-hmm. of the story any different from the one that she told a little bit ago? Uh, no, well, except for the fact that what I was saying in the back of the bus was interesting. Pretty much the same. I mean, what I was saying in the back of the bus was like putting the guy to sleep until Allison came over. He so. was probably drunk uh, too. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no other other than that, I, I think our our version of the past is very similar. Mm, that's cute. So you go to film festivals and stuff, and you've written some. I assume various things and produced various things. How long have you been doing what you're doing? Well, I'm mostly a theater guy, and I've been doing that since 1990. Um, uh, The film stuff I did uh, when I lived in Los Angeles for a spell, and it was mostly writing scripts, although I did a little bit of film acting as well. Um, But this is the first feature film that I've I've directed as, as well as written. Um, so this really, for me, is my fe- my first feature, Service to Man. Well, that's you got both hands on the wheel for this between writing it and directing it. Yeah, yeah, and I was also acting. I was going to well, say that so too. I, I had both hands and a foot on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you got to have a foot on the gas. Uh, so what's kind of right, been like right. your uh, your professional development as a writer? Where did you start? Where were you yeah. physically in the world? Sure, sure. Well, you know, actually, I, I started as an actor. I was a classically trained actor. Um, and uh, I, uh, I went to graduate school. Um, I got my MFA in classical acting at the University of Washington's professional actor training program. So after that, the natural thing was to go do Shakespeare festivals, which I did for a few years, mm-hmm. um, and then found myself in Los Angeles um, not exactly doing Shakespeare, mm-hmm. right? You're doing commercials and, and, and TV stuff, and it really wasn't 
where my passion was. And so um, while I was doing this other work, I started writing a play um, that I was really only doing as a, as a um, as a showcase for a friend of mine and I to be able to showcase our work in Los Angeles. And it got a really good LA times review and it somehow got picked up by a New York producer um, named Lily Turner. And Lily Turner actually founded the off Broadway movement in the, in the thirties and forties with the village gate and the village cricket. So I got pulled out to New York to do my first play in 95, which was called damage Shakespeare and got to work with these incredible artists. All of them were in their 60s, 70s and 80s. She was in her 90s, actually, at the time. Holy cow. And so um, I had always been into tradition. That was something that's always thrilled me as a writer or as an actor, as a director, anything about that. Just knowing that nothing we do is necessarily new, that we're twisting on these, you know, these phenomenal people that came before us. Um, So for me, it was a great training ground as a writer to, to work with these people. Um, and from that, I, I wrote a few plays in New York. Some of them got bumped back to Los Angeles, and that got me a little interest as a writer. Um, and so I worked for a few years as a screenwriter, had a few things optioned, but it was always like pennies for your thoughts. It was, it was never anything that really took off. Um, and as uh, one of my side jobs, I would direct my own plays at universities when they would do them. And I kind of fell in love with working with young artists. Um, the way I, I likened it to sort of um, uh, baby rattlesnakes that spend all <laughs> their venom at once. Um, you know, I've been working with professional actors and directors and writers for many years, and, and to see people that, it, that didn't treat it like a job, that really treated it like life and death, was very invigorating for Ooh, me. Yeah. And so um, I wanted to just see if, if I would like teaching full-time and uh, if, I could, if I could leave writing full-time and do that. And... Uh, I was looking at a few schools, and the one that, that I liked the best was, believe it or not, at Alabama. Uh, and again, it, there was tradition, there was history uh, in this area. A lot of the history is not so good, but that's discussable as well. Um, and that's, you know, fuel for a writer as well. Um, and I, I loved how in touch the area was with their negative and positive histories. So that's why I chose to teach here. I had the uh, MFA and, and BFA acting programs here. And uh, I've been able to work with some terrific young artists that have gone off to do terrific things. Uh, one of my grads is now going to be the lead uh, in Hamilton on Broadway. He Shut did, up. Uh, he did the tour. Uh, he was Hamilton for the Los Angeles tour in San Francisco. And another graduate of mine is uh, Sonequa Martin-Green, and she's, uh, she's the lead in the new Star Trek on television. So, you know, I, I really feel I've been able to partner with young artists starting out on really exciting careers. Yeah. Um, when I was there, sort of the genesis of this project, when I was there, I started developing something called the Bridge Project because, uh, you know, all these artistic students go out um, when they still should be gestating. You know, there's no real internship for us, right? There's fellowship and internship yep. in medicine, and you're going to clerk if you're lawyers, and there's no transitional period for artists. So mm-hmm. I started raising money through the university and outside to do professional projects with professionals that I'd write in New York. I actually did a few in Havana, Cuba as well, and I put students in small roles for their first professional experience. Yeah. And this built up enough that I was able to, to uh, raise enough money to do this as a film. So even though this is a professional film, a lot of the very small and walk-on roles were reserved for my students who were either graduating 
or had been in New York and Los Angeles for a few years and just needed that extra push. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's, it's not only is it a, is it a film, it's also a, a, an internship for a number of, you know, all the students that you see in the film either came out of the smaller students, either come out of the University of Alabama or Stillman College, which is a historically black college near us as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess that sort of, that sort of encapsulates what I've been and what I do because I work at a university. I'm expected to work off the campus about four or five months a year anyways. So I, uh, the reason why I've stayed is I've, I, I haven't felt that it's harmed my ability to continue to produce plays, uh, go direct professionally at Shakespeare festivals or to make films as well. It's in some respects, it's been, um, a laboratory to be able to work out the kinks on these things in front of an audience. Yeah. Uh, so when I get in front of a professional audience, the play has already developed past the point where most of these plays have. And right. what a tremendous gateway you function for these other students and trying to, who are trying to find their way in the world. That's a tremendous asset. Yeah, yeah. And it's, 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 it's something I, I just felt we were missing in, you know, in the way that we train actors or writers or directors as well. Um, that, that sort of professional laboratory... Um, because as you all know, the the profession is so much different than the training. They're really very different things. And to be able to bridge that, I think for young artists puts, I think better artists out there for us to work with as directors and writers as well. So yeah, there's a selfish aspect to it. We want better trained, better professional people out there. So we got to do it. We got to provide those artists. I completely agree. A couple of years ago here in Cincinnati, I put together a big grant proposal to to make an incubator program for young professional artists that was like it was past a master's degree. It was this it was starting a career ladder for people here in the city because I experienced the same thing firsthand. Whereas um, a professional artist, you're not really ready to take on some big roles yet, but you still you 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 still may not have the opportunity to start at the bottom even and right. tr- trying to come up with an incubator program was um one of the ways that I tried to bridge that it it did not pan out yet here but yeah, it, but it, it that's a, that's a terrific idea and and it's so important because nobody's going to take a chance on a new artist right. uh, as money gets tighter in the industry people take fewer and fewer chances you, you have to already have some sort of pedigree or they're not going to cast you. They're not going to hire you to write. They're not going to hire you to direct. So in some respects, we've got to create these projects for each other so they don't feel they're taking a chance. So you're able to show them the currency that you can provide a production. Right. Yeah. Seth, I think that's brilliant. I do too. Thank you for doing that for all of your students and for young people in the arts and creative industries currently. Okay, I mean, what part do we jump off into that and continue here? Let's go with... I think think that some of the stuff that he brought up just now about his life and talking about tradition and talking about history and talking about legacy, Mm -hmm. so many of those themes fit into this script. So I guess, so where did this script come from about this kid that's going to, there's a bit of a fish out of water story of it. Where'd all this come from? Yeah, you know, actually, this is loosely, loosely, loosely based uh, on my father's experiences. Um, and I, I say loosely based because uh, what a student does in medical school is study 23 hours a day and then try to sleep for an hour. Um, so that's not necessarily a dramatic picture. But um, 
And and the flip side of that, of course, is my dad is now convinced that everything in the script actually happened to him in his life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but if I can give him that gift after everything he's given me in my life, then that's fine. <laughs> I think we're not, we're still not even. But um, you know, when I grew up, um, and I, I talk to people about this, it's easier to see as an adult than when I was a kid. But there was something different about my father and his friends in terms of the way that they practiced as doctors. And what I mean by this is that, that they were still doing house calls when nobody else was doing house calls. And if you would go out to dinner with my father, you had to reserve an extra 45 minutes because he would spend that sort of time walking around the restaurant, talking to all his patients and asking oh, wow. the gastroenterologist how they were digesting their meal. <laughs> um, and, you know, of course, it would drive my mother and my sister and I insane but his friends would do the same thing. And, I, and as I got older, I remember once saying to him, what, where does this come from? Not that I even wanted a pattern after that, but where did it come from? And he always said the same thing. It was Meharry Medical School. And to a kid, all medical schools are sort of the same. So it, it was something that was planted on very early on for me. I think because of how I saw him deal with people, I always aspired to be a doctor. But the interesting thing, guys, is that I, I didn't give a shit about medicine. So there was a problem there. And ultimately, that's why I did not become a doctor. But there was something about what he did, this sort of service. And it's something I sort of beat my students over the head with, particularly my MFA students who were really going out there as, as, as older, more mature artists that were in a service industry that it's not about ego or self-aggrandizement or anything else that we might dream that it's about, that, that working in a service industry is a really honorable thing. And there was great honor in my father and these other doctors. So um, it was a piece I always wanted to write, but I don't think I understood the flip side of it, which is the professor side of it, until I, until I started teaching. Mm. And oh, so yeah. the more I taught, the more I understood the chance that a professor takes on a student. It's very different than the chance a student takes when they go to a school, which is, is this student going to break my heart? I mean, it's a lot oh. like, a, like a relationship from both sides, wow. of course. But I'm going to put so much effort into this student. I'm going to put – I believe in them so strongly. Are they going to do the right thing or are they just going to screw this up? Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a guard that professors have. Um, and, and so I sort of became fascinated in that as well. And, and, and from a professor standpoint, seeing students at that crossroad, what, what's, what's, going, what's your voice going to be? What are you going to say when, you, when people are going to really listen to you out there? Um, are, are you going to make a grand statement? Are you going to make a universal statement? Are you going to make a supportive statement? Or are you going to make a selfish statement? Is, is medicine about money or is it about helping people? And you can do both of them. But to some people, there's a right and a wrong or a better and a worse. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I pitched this idea to a friend of mine who was a, a filmmaker. He was actually teaching at University of Alabama at the time. And we'd had a little too much rum in Cuba where I was doing a play in 2008. And after, you know, maybe the third bottle of rum, he said, hey, let's see if we can make this picture. Um, so it really started all the way back in 2008. Um, and from that point, I began researching the script. I went up to Meharry. I was able to interview the man that taught my father. He was no. time. Yep. And wow. that's where Dr. Johnson comes from. Okay, that's the uh, Dr. Dr. Johnson Moses character. His name. Uh, so this is Moses Johnson in the script and and 
and he is that kind of titanic figure at Meharry. And in fact, he still works uh, in outreach for alumni uh, and has a building named after him, right? Which means you really did something right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and just talking to him about the 60s, um, seeing the way that he talked, the way that he spoke, there was almost a military quality to it. Because, of course, he's not only teaching doctors, he's teaching black doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Meharry is a school that taught more black doctors than anybody else in the country at a time. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the combination of Meharry and, and um, uh, you know, and, and Morehouse College and, and these great historically black colleges, I mean, there are very few of them that trained this tremendous amount of successful doctors. Um, and I think all of that went into the soil of writing the script because that, that was not my experience. Uh, on the other hand, um, I, I do think that it informed my teaching, right? Because mm-hmm. I was still developing as a professor in 2008, 2009, and hopefully I'll always continue to develop in that. Um, so I, I, I felt it kind of cross-pollinate, if that makes sense. Yeah. As I was researching, um, and it was improving the script, it was improving the way that I taught students wow. and my understanding of, of what students were going through. Do you want me to continue on with the development of the actual film itself from there? Go for it. Yeah, yeah might as well. So, you know, from, from here, it, it took me a few years to write the script because it was in between a number of projects where I was being paid, right? And all writers have to figure out, uh, yes, this is a passion project, but so is eating. Uh, and um, so I, I was working on a lot of plays I was directing. I was writing a lot of plays in New York. Um, and, uh, and working on a lot of projects down in Cuba. So the script was written over probably a four to five year period, which means it was a jumbled mess. So the first draft on the script was probably 180 pages, um, which is a mess. Uh, and um, over the next probably year, year and a half, I culled that down to the story that you see in this film. It, it took a while to, to make it a unified piece instead of you know, I also wrote it over a number of years when I was developing as a writer and as an artist as well. So um, right the end was much better than the beginning. And I had to make sure this was the same story uh, and it had the same voice in it through the whole piece. Um, then, of course, the next step was uh, was was raising the money, um, yeah. which which was very difficult. But, uh, you know, I'd made enough connections at the university and beyond that I was able to start cobbling together the funds to do it. So uh, we went on, on crowdsourcing as well, uh, you know, to, to be able to, to raise a small amount of money um, and, and get some terrific backers for the project. And we were also fortunate in that we were, because I work at a university and so is my partner, Aaron Greer, we were able to get a lot of things kicked in. Um, you know, um, we were able to get a lot of PAs to work just to get just to work on a picture. We will. A lot of people were taking huge pay cuts to be able to be a part of the project. So mm. we didn't raise a tremendous amount of money, but we were able to get people who were passionate enough about this project that they were able to take less, mm-hmm. much less. And which is a contribution. That's a financial contribution to what you're doing. So that counts for you as well. Yeah. It's something to take into account when you're trying to raise money. So, for instance, Keith David, who should be getting thousands and thousands of dollars a minute for what he's doing, was working for far below what he would ever take on a project because he knew doctors from Meharry, Lamont Rutger. He yeah. knew he had spoken at Meharry. So these are people who were really positive about getting the word out. And Meharry is not a school that, that, that trumpets their own accomplishments. And so uh, they've never cared. You know, they're too busy trying to save lives and, and, and develop doctors. So we were able to get a lot of people to contribute their art 
to the piece for nothing or next to nothing. Wow. And that's how we were able to raise the money. Um, we filmed it entirely in Western Alabama. Uh, it was just too expensive to film at Meharry, and Meharry's a working hospital. They're not going to shut down so these schmucks can come in and, and make a little picture. Um, and uh, we were fortunate that Spillman College, which is right by us, uh, looks a lot like Meharry because the architects on these HBCUs really worked together. Um, and we were able to film there uh, at the University of Alabama as well and, and locally. Um, and then because uh, Aaron and I are both working professors, we had to find the time to cut it, which took us about six months, and uh, then went off to the film festivals, which was incredibly successful for us. We were just overwhelmed with the, the, the response. You, know, you sit in a dark room and look at this film for so long. And then to really put it in front of an audience to me, was the biggest thrill of the entire project. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first time that it played at, at a film festival and, and, and seeing an audience laugh and gasp and, <clears throat> and boo me because I'm the bad guy in it. So I got a couple <laughs> of hisses that, you know, that are for showing. Um, and uh, from there, we, just, we, we actually had a few distributors contact us. Um, and, and then we went through a year process of trying to figure out where the best home for the project would be. Um, we recently settled on uh, Freestyle Entertainment, um, and uh, we really like uh, their passion for the project and, and what their vision is to get it to the maximum number of people, which is what we wanted to do in the first place. Um, and we're working with them right now on how we deliver it in uh, February is what they're shooting for in terms of release. Wow. Would, Excellent. Would that be a theatrical release or something like through Netflix? No, I, or... I, they're, they're doing um, you know pay-per-view platforms, cool. and uh, they're looking at cable. Um, they're, they're looking at those types of platforms for the first one. I think there, there might be a, a small limited release just to, to build a few release, uh, uh, reviews that you could put on a DVD and that sort of thing. Um, but they think they're better served for doing Netflix and, and iTunes and Amazon. Um, but right now they, they just did the American film market. So that was in Los Angeles and Santa Monica, and they spent two weeks pitching it to all kinds of, of, uh, of online platforms, Showtime On Demand and Cinemax On Demand and uh, History Channel, Lifetime, uh, BET, um, those types of, uh, of platforms. Okay, we have a lot we need to get into because there was that, that's a tremendous amount of information. The one thing I want to let people pump the brakes on real quick, you really casually mentioned Keith David. Uh, who's an actor that I've been watching his stuff for, for years now. He's one of the people that was in this, it, that, that got cast in this, and I think that's tremendous. And the fact that he played such a role in getting this made and the way it was made, that's awesome. Yeah, it was, it, it was I'll tell you the story. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely story. So our, our casting directors we were meeting with in New York, and uh, uh, it's Ellen Marshall and, um, and Maria Nelson. And they, they've been working in theater for years and years. Uh, and I, I really wanted someone of stature. Uh, two yeah. actors of stature to play these these uh, these incredible um, African American doctors in the piece, and so both of them said to me, "We, you know, we, again over drinks. I, I fear that this is a this is a meme here with drinks, but we're um, <laughs> you know we're, we're having drinks." And they said to me, "Well, who would be your dream actor for the dean? Right? So he's, this is the power guy. This is the king of the whole place. And who's?" I said, "Well, that would be Keith David." And Marie said, "Oh, really?" And she took out her phone and she texted a little bit. And then the text came back, and she looked up, and she said, he's interested. Let's send him the script. Oh, so my God. Keith David. Come on. Keith David for decades in theater. 
on Broadway, off Broadway. You know, Keith originated a bunch of roles for August Wilson on Broadway. Yeah. You know, I mean, Keith's a, a powerhouse, and obviously we know him in TV and film, but but this guy's a legend in in, in regional theater and, and Broadway theater. And they'd worked with him a million times, and they had just been texting him this morning. They're just close, you know, thick as thieves. And so it was very fortunate, and he said, sure, let me read the script. And he read the script very quickly, and he knows Meharry, and he said, you know, can you keep it to three days? And we said, absolutely, and he said, I'm in. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great gift. But i got to tell you, it's also terrifying. Your first day directing, guys, oh. you're directing Keith David, and you're acting in the scene. Oh, come on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, and- well, sorry, that's our third day of filming. That's our third day of film. So, I'm, so it's the scene, it's the argument scene between the professors. So I'm arguing with him in the scene and directing him. Oh, boy. And I worship him. How in the how in the world do you argue against anything Keith David is saying you with any level of passion? You, you just curl up into a ball, right? Yeah, I, I pretty much did. And in between takes, he was just great. He'd joke with you, and 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 you know, uh, you know, he, he was he was very easy to work with. But still, you know, anytime you're working with somebody who's who's whose work you respect uh, that much, the, the first step, of course, is is you just rig up and yeah. you can't do anything. And then you wake up and you say, I've got to steal from this guy. I better keep my damn eyes open. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful educational opportunity. Um, and, and, you know, I also learned something from Lamont Rucker that first day of shooting. And Lamont's been around the block a million times. He's done Tyler Perry films, and you know, he's, he's very established. He's on Greenleaf right now with yeah. Keith. Um, the first thing Lamont did, and here's, a, again, a really established actor who doesn't have to do anything. He can be as egomaniacal as he wants. He's earned it, and other people do this. He walks onto the set, guys, and before we roll, he walks past every single person, every grip, every PA, and asks their name and shakes their hand and introduces himself as if they don't know who the hell he is <laughs> and, remembers, and remembers everyone's name. Mm-hmm. So on every break, he, t- he talks to them. Mm-hmm. You, it immediately changed the, the environment Right, you could feel the air change on set by the way that he handled that. It was right. really beautiful to watch. Well, it's beautiful because people bridge that gra- that gap between like their professional and their personal lives in a very positive way. That by developing yeah. an atmosphere to work in which everybody feels at home working, you are going right. to get the greatest right. work. It, out it's of a it. good point, and, and everybody also, Allison, feels like they have an input. Yeah, that they are part of the product. Yes. especially when we're on ultra low budget stuff because people are working way beneath what they're worth. Everybody, everybody's working underneath what they should be paying, uh, what they should be paid, excuse me. So for them to feel that they are part of this, even if they're not in front of the camera, even if they're not holding the camera, that they're part of what's actually going into the world, I think, I think legitimizes it for them. Right. Well, it, it really increases that emotional value that they have, which is ultimately right. their 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 cost, their wage here. Seth, we got to jump into the script here. We need to uh, talk about this show specifically, and uh, we need to read a little bit and give the audience a uh, some broad strokes about what what uh, what this script is about. Sure. So let's go ahead and read a selection from the script. Um, mm-hmm. We have today, listeners, uh, I will be playing the role of Melanie. Jack will be playing the role of Michael. Seth will be reading our action headings, etc. Um, we are. We should intro this a little bit. And also, I just want to clarify that these characters are both black characters. And Jack and I are both white redheads. Mm-hmm. So there's... Mm-hmm. 
This, just be aware of it. Yeah, just be aware. The script has a lot of really strong black actor roles in it, and I can't play a black woman because I'm white, but this is all I have right now in the room. Um, and so just know that that's happening. Um, Seth, do you want to set up a little bit what's happening right before the scene and sure, how we're getting to sure. these characters? So, so right before, this is, this is the first test. And, and when the tests would go up, when the results would go up, they'd be listed by name. Although in this, in this project, just to hide and, and give us a little mystery, it's just the initials of the characters go up. And what would happen is the women from Fisk, which is the all-women's college next to Meharry, would line up to see who got the best grades. And then they would go after mm. the men who were very successful at the Harry. Mm. <laughs> so we've just had all of the grades posted. Um, Michael Dubois is number one. Uh, and he uh, has a lot of pressure on him because his father was the number one student at Mary when he graduated years before. And Eli, of course, is number two and hot on his trail. Um, Michael's uh, childhood friend, Melanie, goes to Fisk. They haven't seen each other since Michael's been here. And Melanie has just checked the, um, the scores and she's trying to catch up with Michael and congratulate him. There we go. All right. So, Seth, whenever you are ready, take us into scene 31 here. Okay. Exterior, Meharry Medical College. The Meharry men have arranged themselves outside on the grass, and one by one, a fist girl approaches demurely, making polite conversation. Michael comes downstairs. Michael? Melanie Dixon rushes over to him with an iridescent smile. She's arguably the most gorgeous woman at Fisk, and the fact she behaves unaware of this makes her even more attractive. Michael's icy demeanor thaws the moment he sees her. Melanie, hey! She gives him a warm, friendly hug. I'm so impressed! That's you, right, MD? Michael Dubois, head of the class? Yeah, it's just the first test. Come on, Mike. You're allowed to smile, you know. Just this once. 87? That's fantastic. It's okay. You know what my dad will say. Yeah. What happened to the other 13? (laughs) She takes his face in her hands. Look at you. My big brother, the doctor. Remember what my mom said? You're going to have to beat those women off with a stethoscope. Michael nonchalantly edges away from her touch. Yeah, how is your mom? Insane. She still thinks we're getting married. (laughs) Well, that's crazy. (laughs) Right? As if we'd ever risk a lifelong friendship for a few sweaty nights of physical passion. Yeah, ridiculous. (laughs) How many nights? (laughs) She laughs and takes his arm as they walk down the street. So tell me, who's number two? Two? You know, you're number one. Who's number two? E-R. Michael Holtz. Why do you want to know? I've always had a thing for number two. He has to work a little harder. I like that. Don't be too sure. This one doesn't have to work at all. Introduce me. No way, Mel. Mikey. Forget it. I have to go to class. He starts off the other way. I'll see you later. He doesn't make an answer. She watches after him. And scene. What a fun scene. Little lovebirds, kind of, kind of not. <laughs> yep. um, so there's an interesting, like, B story going on. Eli, the character that they sort of refer to, who... E.R. Yeah, E.R. That's that's loosely based on your dad, right? Correct. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's loosely based on my father's so, experience. So is your dad white, and he was he was attending yeah. this all-black yeah, so school? My dad, I mean, my dad essentially is is what we see in this play, in this, in this film. You know, he, he came from Brooklyn... Uh, and uh, uh, Meharry was actually the only medical school he got into. He applied to everyone under the stars. He, got, uh, he didn't have great grades his first two years of college. He had great grades his second two years. That's still the average. 
So uh, Meharry at the time was trying to broaden their range, and they were trying to bring in more white students and student, international students. And so he was very fortunate that they took a chance on him. He, took, he turned out to be a brilliant doctor, and I think Meharry saw that. So this was his experience going down there. These are, these are you know, Russian Jewish kids in Brooklyn who had only seen African-Americans when they went into the city or on television. That was their only experience with them. Yeah. Well, your script, you, you know, you've talked about um, establishments that embrace the good and the bad history. And that's part of the theme of this screenplay set in 1967 is how a white man does in a black dominated area. And then how these black people are responding to this white world that's responding back to them. Just this constant marginalization that happens in really interesting ways for a script. Yeah, it's, and it's also interesting. That so, so they're fighting against race, right? And they're fighting against what they're how they're expected to treat each other, and what their preconceived notions are on each other. And then they're all fighting together against medicine. Yeah which is incredibly difficult to learn, and professors that are incredibly hard on them, and there's life and death on that level as well. Um, and so, you know, ultimately what I was trying to show is that, these, that we're all fighting bigger battles, and that when we acknowledge that we're all fighting the same battle together, these walls that have been created by our parents or by society or by the history of this country, they sometimes bleed away. Now, is Michael anybody based on anybody real? This other guy who's got a, a medical history behind him, there's a lot of pressure on him to do you know, well? Michael's, Michael's based loosely on a few people, one of whom was a very close friend of my father's that I grew up with. Um, so I grew up, our best friends when I was very young was, was this gentleman and his, his two children. So um, uh, because they, they all sort of gathered together in this area in San Pedro uh, after Vietnam. A lot of them were in the public health service in Vietnam. And so they all kind of gathered in the same area. Um, so he's loosely based on that person, but also based on a dear friend of mine from graduate school, William Hill. Um, and, and, and William's experience in our MFA acting program. William had come from South Central, genius and an intellectual, and yet he was up in a white world in Seattle, in Shakespeare. This was not his experience, although he was a beautiful actor. Um, and so I... I I think a lot of William, actually, of, of, of seeing how my friend dealt with alienation, um, how he put up walls even when other people didn't um, to protect himself, and then to see what happened when those walls came down. I, I, I think he sort of takes over the role as the script develops. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful to, to think about, too, the idea of somebody putting um, kind of expected walls up because of course, right. Eli Rosenberg comes into this and he doesn't have a lot of these kind of institutional and current institutionalized and current ideas about race and racism as a lot of other right. white people do. So he's, he's running into walls that he doesn't really know exist yet. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think it's also important, too, because he uh, I, I think you're not wrong, but he's also bringing in he's not say he's hes not a wasp coming into the situation. He's got this whole Jewish background, which is going right. to influence things differently than, say, uh, a, a, a Catholic would or, or a, you know, a Methodist right. would. Right. And, and also, obviously, you know, for talking historically, the Jews were all aware that there were there were Jewish students coming out of northeastern colleges that were going down to register voters, mm -hmm. um, that were going down to join some of the marches. Um, and that, that's something that Eli and my father was very aware of as well. Going to Nashville was not going to the moon.
right? Right. I mean, there were there were other people that had done it, uh, and so um, you know there was a tradition already of, of 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 going down and taking part in the civil rights struggle. The opening scene, I love the way this script starts, and I'm not sure how much it translates into the final product, but the opening scene of both Eli and Michael driving separately, presumably to go to this college, they both get pulled over by the same jerk cop who at one point asks Mm. Eli if he's going down to register voters. Right, right, exactly. And and the the film does begin with that. Um, there There was a draft where the film began in Brooklyn with Eli hearing that he'd gotten into Meharry. And, and the fear of his parents and the pressure of his parents as well as he went out. But, but you know, always as a writer, you want to say, what, how am I going to start the piece off with the audience knowing what planet we're on? Yeah. And for me, the piece is about these two men battling the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so to see Eli battling against anti-Semitism and Michael battling against racism – shows shows a, a connection between the two of them that we're not going to see until deep in the second act. Yes. And, and so I, I did want to plant that um, so the audience knows this is the couple, this is the couple that's supposed to be together. I don't mean romantically, but I mean this is the spiritual couple of the play. And when mm-hmm. these two people, and we're talking white and black if we want to talk thematically, when they get together, we're, things are going to be fine. But as long as there's schism and divorce, things are not going to be well. So Melanie, in some respects, we've just read this scene, so it'll make sense to the listeners. Melanie exists to take them off the track. She's not the relationship. Right. The relationship is between these two men, and they'll create every other thing they can to avoid the relationship they should be having, which is between each other, the two smartest men in this program. Mm Mm-hmm. The uh, there you talk about this rivalry that starts out where it is a rivalry and then it turns into more of a friendly rivalry. Well, another part in the script that I really really enjoyed was how these guys keep getting called into the dean's office and there's no <laughs> chair to sit in, and they get so used to it at one point they're each carrying folding chairs as they're walking down the hall and because they know they're going to get called in. Right, right, and there, of course there's nowhere to sit in the dean's office because he wants you to stand and be uncomfortable. So right, this is the way they both solve that thing differently. Um, yeah, you know, and actually that's, that's taken loosely from real things that would happen. So it wasn't just the dean that would do this. Any professor would do this. And in that respect, it was a little like the Marines. So they'd catch you in the hallway and they'd start asking you questions. Mm-hmm. And if you couldn't answer them, you'd, you'd get in trouble or you'd get that look from Keith David, which is worse than oh, any trouble you could imagine. It, it will wilt um, you. And, uh, <laughs> and they would sometimes ask them things that they hadn't taught them in class. They expected them to be active learners mm-hmm. uh, and, and not to make it just about the books that they were given, but to be um, inspired to, to learn everything they possibly could about the mystery of medicine. So, so there is a knowledge between those two characters that there's, there's something about each of them. And I think that's the seed that ultimately um, blossoms into a respect that then becomes a friendship right. later on. Well, they find themselves in these very challenging situations, for example, making house calls together yeah. where their yeah. their weaknesses and their strengths immediately play into each other. So when they right. recognize that each has something to offer and they begin to work together to 
in service to man mm -hmm. in order Correct. to reach these ideals and these principles that they're now grasping, then they fully start to come into their own and the, in the script and then the movie itself, because I've been lucky enough to see, see the movie, um, it, it blossoms, just like you're saying, into this yeah. beautiful space where, where people now live. Yeah. And I, I think also when someone discovers something that they feel is special personally and someone else has discovered the same thing, uh, there's, there's a bond that can crack any other wall that's up. And you, you see this in people in war. You see this in people that share a religion or a, or a strong philosophy. Um, you see this, unfortunately, in this country politically. Um, but when people share that kind of a bond, it, it, it does rise to a spiritual level. And um, and that was one of the things that I was I was trying to capture. And it's something that I see in students when when they leave the program with their eyes on the prize, that it's it's about service to man. So that's so that we should say that that's the, the code of Meharry, which is the worship yes. of God through service to man. That that's how we worship um, the deity is by helping our fellow men and women. Um, and, and for me, the, the reason I loved working on this script is it's, it's what we do as artists. It's no different. It, it didn't feel to me ultimately when I was writing it, that I was writing about something I hadn't done before. So I think it's important for writers to, when you are writing about you know, World War II or, or detective or whatever else you're writing, you better, you better find yourself in that material or it's, it's never going to be truthful. Yeah, because otherwise you're just doing a, like a, a history lecture instead of making it a personal right. story. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. One of the other themes you talked about, service being a major theme and always having to fight a larger battle being a theme. One of the other themes that I sort of found in it was the idea that there's more than one way to do things. And I think that that really applies to what you're doing with these students and trying to show them how they can find their way in the world, whether we're talking about the medical students in this script or the kids that, that you're teaching. The idea that, okay, you can be a good doctor and serve people, but yeah, you, you can make some pretty good money too. There's more. I think one yeah. of the lines of dialogue in the script is there's more than one way to thread a catheter right right yeah yeah there is an and 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 you know it's it's the old line from hamlet you know there's nothing either good or bad but thinking makes it so thinking makes it so what are you prepared to live with i mean what you know i mean you can you can do it both ways but ultimately ultimately for everybody there's one way that's the best fit and you got to figure out what that fit is and then you got to live with it you know if sorry to use another theater theme but in in macbeth macbeth's got to learn that he's a murderer yeah. He, and he gets comfortable with it. And Lady Macbeth goes insane because she's not. So it, at some point, you gotta, you got to get into bed with you, whatever that is. What's it like trying to write a s story like this that's loosely based on some reality, but then there's a lot of fiction, too, and then because it is historically set, having a big moment late in the script there, it, it's, it's April 4th, uh, 1968, Martin Luther King has been shot. That throws such a huge rock into the water of these characters' everyday lives. They're just trying to get through, and then all of a sudden this wave hits them. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and that was, again, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm taking four years of experience from my father and his friends and, and, and what I researched and trying to put that into one season. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I, I got the idea to do that at the end when I visited Meharry. Um, there's, um, there's kind of a demarcation line between Meharry and this incredibly poor community that's outside of it. And, and there's a bridge that you cross under 
and then you're in this beautiful manicured Meharry, and on the other side, you're in a really tough part of town. And, and I, it, it seemed to me to be sort of the mouth of the beast, you know? And, and so I wanted that to be the climax of what happens when these, one of these kids gets loose, and it seemed natural to me that it needed to be Eli to get loose, and, and would they claim him or not? Mm-hmm. And would they bring him back? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it fit in historically with what was going on. So I wasn't stretching anything historically, but this actually never happened. Nobody, none of the students were caught out in the riots on that day. Um, so yeah, you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're breaking history to tell history as accurately as you can in story, right? Cause yeah. there's, there's story truth and there's historic truth. And mm-hmm. those are two very different things. But you can you can get to the truth of a spirit of something by altering history to tell it dramatically, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. That's such a beautiful thought that you can get to the spirit of something by altering it dramatically. And I think it's a but it's it's gotta be a hard balance, right? Because you there's there there's I think an innate sense of obligation to be true to history, but you also wanna be true to the story you're telling. I feel like that's gotta be a really tricky line to to, 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 to walk. It is you know, it, it is a tricky line because you don't want to offend anybody, but I, I personally feel, and again, right, we talked, there's, there's no good or bad, right? This is how I feel about it. I, I, I feel you always go towards the story. As the writer, you are responsible for the story and not the history. And if they want to ding you on the history, and if they're looking at the history, you haven't done your job as a writer. Fair enough. They're looking at the wrong thing. It means you didn't, you didn't do your job well enough. Because it is in history. And like you said earlier, it's not, it's not a documentary. There are great documentaries on this time period, much better than I could ever film. But this story is, is my story and my communing with this historical period and what I think it says about today. Because the only reason to write about history is because you're making a comment about today. Or let's look right. at it in a, in a museum. Right. So for me, and maybe I failed history in certain spots, I will tell you that, that one of the greatest things I heard from Meharry is that one of the vice presidents emailed me and said, okay, your medicine's a little off, honey. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, and I expected that. I said, ah, I know I'm going to get dinged on this medicine because I'm, I'm taking it third hand and I'm asking dad medical questions and, and I'm screwing it up when I write it. And I'm trying to tell jokes sometimes, right? So we're bending the medicine there too. Um, but he said, the spirit of Meharry is in this film. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's what you're after. Yeah. You're not after the specifics. You're after the ghost in the machine. And, and I, 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 think, I think history takes a backseat. One, one of my favorite historical performances is Anthony Hopkins' is Nixon. Mm-hmm. That boy looks nothing like Nixon. That boy sounds nothing like Nixon. And to me, he's Nixon. Mm-hmm. Because I think he found the jealousy and the fear and, 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 and the way I think Hicks, Nixon must have been in those last two nights in his presidency. Yeah, trying to get to the truth. It wasn't accurate historically, but to me it was accurate dramatically, which was more important to me as a viewer. Do you think that starting out as an actor has really influenced the way that you write and how you get to the spirit? Yeah, it was my training. I I never, I, I took, I took Robert McKee's story class. I was sent there. I can't remember who paid for it, but a production company paid the money for me to go take, and it's a phenomenal class. It was wonderful. Um, but aside from that, my class was um, living in the worlds of the best writers of all time. And, and so getting to see their work from the inside, you know, from the fascia 
really helped me as a writer, knowing how an actor, because obviously the actor, I mean, is going to breathe life into the material and the director is going to have to capture that and tell that story. But without a living heartbeat, you don't have a shot. I mean, it's just, it's just a painting. For it to take life, there's got to be something from the actor there. So knowing what an actor looks for, I think, helped me a lot. Um, and, and when I write, I, I speak it out loud. And if it doesn't, yeah. and if I can't act it, no matter how good the line looks on the page, I'll dump the line. Because mm-hmm. I don't think the actor is going to be able to translate it into terms that he or she are, are going to be able to understand. Mm-hmm. Do your characters, when you're writing them out on the page, since you already have the characters somewhat developed in your mind, do they tend to dictate what you write, or do you... Yeah. Kind of, yeah? Well, when it's going well, right? Yeah. When it's going well, they take over. When, it, when, it's, when it's a pile of dreck, I'm, I'm doing all the work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that, and Allison, you're an actor as well, so you understand that there's, there's a point. So we prep as much as we can, and we put as many points of reference in our performance as actors as we can. And then ultimately the subconscious has to take you over. Give over. Like, I, I, Carl Lewis knew exactly how many feet each of his steps were at each point in the race. And on race day, he just said, I ran like hell. Yeah. So that's what the actor has to do. The more points you have, the easier it is to improvise. And so that's true as a, as a, as a writer as well. You do as much research as you can. You plot the whole piece out. You know exactly what the characters are about. You know, every major turning point in the scene, you know what they're after and what's stopping them. And then you just write the freaking scene. You sit back and you let the scene take care of itself. And then you go be analytical about it. But I don't believe you can be analytical and write well at the same time. I think they all have their place in the development of your scene. I would agree. Um, so do you have to set aside like a certain time and space to write then? Yeah, I, I write best at night, and I think it's probably because I'm teaching during the day. Yeah. So my just best kind of... writing is probably between 2 in the afternoon and 2 in the morning at some point in there whenever I'm writing. Um, I've written after 2, and then I throw it out the next day. And I've written before 2, and it's usually direct. So for some reason, and it's probably because as the life of an actor, which is what I did for 10 years before I started writing, you know, you're working late at night. And, yeah. And uh, you're sleeping, you're sleeping off whatever happened after you, you know, you did the show. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, but it, it's not one point during the day for me. It's, it's that time period. Yeah. And, and now that you've lived with this script and this screenplay and this feature movie for so long, how do you feel about all of it now that you're near... I mean, it's like you're about to start another journey with the distribution, but you're kind of through a lot of the work of it here. Yeah, it, 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 it's at this point. This script is at the point for me that I've forgotten it in the best of ways, which is that when I look at it, I'm able to forget that I worked on it so I can enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and sometimes for me, and it may be true for the two of you as well, when, I, when I'm looking at something that I'm working on, I can't. I can't ever appreciate it because I'm always trying to refine it, right? The writer can always write the scene better. There's no point where the scene is locked until they hit you over the head and they take the pages from you and they say, we're shooting, you're done, right? right? We're paying you, we don't want to see you on set or whatever the situation is. Or the actors take it in a play and it's their play, you know? Um, but I think I have enough distance now that I forget sometimes and I'm able to, I'm able to even laugh at it. And then I got to stop myself because like, what are you an egomaniac? Don't laugh at your own shit. <laughs> but um, but 
but I do like that distance from the piece because I'm finally able to appreciate it. Well, and you sort of held on to that element of control a little bit longer because you also directed this. It wasn't just a write it and then hand it off to somebody. Right. I think that's a function of how I worked as a playwright as well. Because, again, I'm an actor and a director, so I never wrote anything for somebody else. I wrote it because I wanted to put it in front of an audience. And I, and I was going to be part of that from beginning to end. So there's no, I don't think there's anything I've written that I didn't have a hand in where it went. And it's, it's because also as an actor, you, you've got to create your own opportunities. And as a writer, you have to create your own opportunities. No one's going to take a chance on you. So you have to have a product. Um, even if it's a small product, just, start, just giving, giving them a glimpse of what you're capable of doing helps them take a chance on you. It takes the guesswork out of their job, which you want to help them with. Um, and so, that, so I've always either written something that I could act in or written something I could direct, or if I was really crazy, both. Yeah. You are really crazy, Seth. <laughs> Seth, yeah. I hate to say this, but we got it. We got to wrap this up, man. This, <laughs> this time flew by in ways that I Good. don't think any show has flown by for us yet. Yeah, it's beautiful. Fantastic. Well, it was wonderful talking to you both. Yeah, how can people find yes. your? Uh, how can people find this film? Find out more about your work if they're curious about you. What's the best way for somebody to sure. learn about well, you? Well, um, you know, the film. We we have a website, servicetoman.com, um, and they can go there, and, and we do announce. Uh, you know what we're doing through that. There's a, they can find it on Facebook as well and on Twitter. Um, uh, we'll have the announcements of when it's exactly it's going to be released. Freestyle, Freestyle Entertainment is the distributor, and they're they're going to be coming out with a um, uh, with a press release soon, which will probably pe- people be able to pick up on that as well. But the, the release date is mid February. They'll be able to see mm-hmm. the film after that. If they're interested in, in doing more research on me for some ungodly reason, um, uh, <laughs> they can go to my website, which is sethpanich.com. Um, and if, if, if there are writers listening and they, they have questions about writing, I'm happy for them to contact me directly on my email, which is spanich at ua.edu, S-P-A-N-I-T-C-H at ua.edu. Wow. That's awesome. You're Dude, so thanks. sweet. Thank you so much. Yeah. Of course. It's my pleasure, guys. All this right. was great. We'll talk to you, Seth. Okay. Thanks, Seth. All right. Holy cow. That was an awkward way what to say I... bye to him. I... We'll talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Robots because I can't. The presence of an awesome person. Because my brain is trying to process <laughs> all of the fantastic stuff. I know. I mean, that's a lot. I know. I feel like when sometimes you meet passionate people who who live their lives in their themes, you, you learn so much about them, and yeah. then it takes a while to process. You know, it's like you spend the next week just thinking about all the little bits that Seth shared with us, mm-hmm. and then those influence your life, and they're going to influence my life. And when we get to release this, it's going to influence all of our friends' lives and That's our listeners. Right. And it's incredible. Just the idea, his his approach to stuff is looking at it as service, I think, is... Uh, Beautiful. Uh, that, that, that's a show right there. That's, I mean, and I... I'm completely on board with him too. And that's a lot of why like I love that we do this show is because mm-hmm. we provide a service to people to talk about their stories and to really get things out there. And that's important to me. It yeah. adds a lot of value for me personally. If you do have a story that you'd like to get out there <laughs> and you want it to get with us first, uh, there's a way you service can do that. Service to screenwriters. Service to us. <laughs> you can go to tattoo us. I don't know. <laughs> well, we're, I don't that's, want to say that we're servicing you. That's a whole other... <laughs> I'm not doing uh, that again. That's a different genre script shop show.com slash submit. submit 
bring us your beautiful words, please. We want to talk about them and we want to share them because your words are special and your story is special and we need it to be a part of our world. Yes. And you can also find us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, Look us up. Check us out. iTunes and Google Play. Yep. Uh, leave us a review. Give us a rating. We would really appreciate that, too. If you enjoyed what Seth brought to the table today, which how could you not? That was spectacular. Yeah. And make sure to check him out on our website. Check out the script and stay tuned for his movie to be available soon. Yeah, we'll keep you in the loop on that because that was uh, I'm dying to see this. Yeah. So, uh, listeners, until next week, that's a wrap. Script Shop was created by Allison West. Hosted by Allison West and Jack Crumley. Produced by Frank Steele. Thanks to iHeartMedia Cincinnati for use of their studio. Intro music, Retro Soul by bensound.com. Outro music by purple-planet.com. Special thanks to all our guests. Thanks for listening. <laughs>